Amen. So, Exodus 22. Is that not too loud? Not too loud? Okay. We're not. We're not all old. Not all. All right. So if if you're watching on live stream, nobody's nobody's messing with the live stream. So we're. It's gonna be what it is, and I'm 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 just gonna set it and forget it. So. All right. You guys come on and sit down. So tonight we're going to continue in what is called the Book of the Covenant. We walk through we've walked through all the chapters in Exodus so far, but we took a long time in dealing with the commandments that were given at Sinai in Exodus 20, uh, and the chapters uh, after 21 through 24 is often called the Book of the Covenant. And what it is, if you it was two weeks ago when we actually met and talked about it. But what these chapters include is it's just a bunch of different case law examples, and they give specific applications of the commandments that we studied in the Ten Commandments. So if you've ever, I'm sure many of you, like you read your Bible through in a year or whatever, you've probably read through these, but these are sections that we don't spend a lot of time reading, you know, because it's just one one law right after another. You know, if this happens, this is what you do. If this happens, this is what you do. Uh, and they're not in, uh, I mean, they are in an order, in an organized fashion, but they're, they're, they bounce back and forth as to what it's actually talking about. But they're, they're made up of these different case laws, um, specific applications to the commandments. And we need to remember that these cases that we're going to look at, you know, if, if your neighbor steals your donkey, this is what happens. If, if he steals an ox and he can't get it back, this is what happens. These cases weren't intended to be an exhaustive list of every possible situation that might come into play. What they're doing is giving principles of how to apply the Ten Commandments and how to bring justice in the covenant community when there is a breach of those commandments. So basically they're giving us application to help Israel know how to live toward one another under the covenant of God that they received at, the, at Sinai. And they're being told what, basically what justice looks like. You know, in, in this particular instance, in this particular instance, in this particular instance. They're being told what justice looks like so that they would be able to enact justice uh, when the time comes. So if, for instance, if you're a judge in Israel and, and, and something comes up that's not exactly like what's enumerated in all of these laws, they take the principle of the justice applied to these laws and they apply it uh, through, those, through those things. Everybody got me? Everybody understand? Okay. Uh, I know it's not riveting reading, but it is, it is important. And as we do this, remember we are going to be seeing as we look at these laws and these punishments and these, you know, these elements of justice, we're going to be seeing all three aspects of the law of God. You remember what they are? Civil, Civil law, ceremonial. ceremonial law, and the moral law. Which one is abiding forever over all peoples, all cultures, all times? Moral law. That is the Ten Commandments. And the commandments, you know, there's several others in the commandments as well. Moral law is abiding forever, for all times, never, never going to be right in any culture to kill, steal, adultery, all those things. 
Uh, that's a moral law. But there's also aspects of civil law. And with civil law deals with what? Well, theft is a moral law. It's always wrong. But in the Old Testament covenant under Israel, what you would do with an adulterer or a thief is what? You would stone them to death, right? That's, that's a civil law under, under Israel. So we, we could look at that. We could look at that example that we just said. So you could say adultery is a moral law that is always in force, always, always wrong. But the punishment given for Israel under God was not the punishment that we use as civil in civil society today. That was a civil law. And the last category was ceremonial. And what do we do with ceremonial law? Ceremonial law doesn't apply. Jesus fulfilled those. So ceremonial law deals with what's clean and unclean. How do you come before God? You know, if you touch a dead body, you got to wash yourself for seven days, or you got to bring this certain sacrifice or that sacrifice for this thing or the other thing. None of that applies. It's been abrogated because Christ fulfilled that, and you're clean in Him. So there's no more cleanliness laws. There's no more food laws. There's no more all of those things uh, because of what Christ has done. And remember, we talked about the fact that once we enter into these just law, 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 you're not going to see this clean break between, okay, here are all the moral laws, here are all the civil laws, here are all the ceremonial laws. There's going to be elements dispersed within. And what we're doing is we're looking at the law of God the way that the apostles did when they wrote the epistles to the churches, when they wrote instruction to the New Testament church, how they applied these laws. So for instance, we just talked about you take an adulterer out and you stone them, you know, stone them to death. Well, we are also told in the New Testament by Peter and by Paul that we are to be subject to the governments that we're under, subject to the civil law that we are under. It says that the government is carries the sword for a reason. It's a minister of God. And if you were to take out you know, an adulterer and stone them to death, you would go to jail. It's against the law. So we don't abrogate the civil law that we live under, that we're commanded to live under, uh, for the sake of going back to a civil law that was a theocracy under Israel. I know that's kind of confusing sometimes, but any questions? Y'all get me? As we look at these laws, you're going to see a lot of different civil ceremonial, civil ceremonial, moral. You're going to see. So there could be many laws that have a moral principle. It's wrong. It's always wrong. But the punishment that's enumerated here is a civil uh, judgment that we no longer enact in civil in our civil government. Make sense? Mm -hmm. uh, Y'all looking at me like, yes, it makes perfect sense. <laughs> Okay, I'm not sure how far we'll get. We're probably only going to get to verse 15. I wanted to do the whole chapter, but there's just, there's, there's just too, too much here. Even with the civil law and the moral law and all of those things, even though the civil law is not technically, you know, we're not technically under the civil law and we're not, certainly not under the ceremonial law, there is a general equity, and we've talked about this over and over again, a general equity to all the laws. And the example I always use, and you've heard it before, is we're told... You, if you, you must build a fence around your roof. You know, you must, and that was because they congregated on their roofs when it was hot. And we say, we look at that and we say, we don't congregate on our roofs. You don't have to build a fence on your roof. But the general principle of that law is you take care of people when they're in your house or they're on your property. You take care to make sure they're safe, you know. So we do look at the general equity of these laws. 
So we're going to probably stop at verse 15. Last week in chapter 21, or I guess it was two weeks ago in chapter 21, what did we talk? We talked about laws about what? About bond servants. Calls them slaves, but technically we, there were bond servants because it was voluntary. It was only for seven years. It was, you know, so it was bond servants. We also talked about laws about personal injury. You know, if you cause someone to be injured, you have to make this kind of restitution, this kind of restitution. Uh, and the first four verses of chapter 22 are going to be an application of the eighth commandment, which is thou shalt not steal. steal. Way to go. We know our commandments. Thou shalt not steal. So here's, here's what it says. Man, are you kidding? I am right next to this thing. All right, I'm just going to do it this way. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or, or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. Now, the order of these verses is very, very curious. So verses 1 and verse 4 deal with the theft of animals. Is that ringing? Do you all hear that? Don't like it. Verse 1 and 4 deal with theft of animals. Verse 2 and 3 deal with uh, like a, someone breaks into your home, a theft of, uh, of private property. So let's take verses 1 and 4 together first and talk about that. It, it focuses on animals, focuses on oxen and, and sheep. Now, obviously, not many of us have oxen or sheep. I mean, I'm sure some of us probably do, but not many of us have that. Um, but the majority of the things that are going to get stolen from us or, I mean, hopefully nobody in here is going to steal stuff, but that we might steal is not going to be oxen or animals or those kind of things. Why is the emphasis on animals here in Exodus 22? Because that is their livelihood. That's exactly right. So whether it be, especially an ox, an ox was probably the most valuable tool for farming. It took years, you know, these are things I read this week. It took years to train an ox, to, and a good farming ox was hard to replace. Um, and, and verse 1 tells us that if it's stolen uh, and it could not be recovered, meaning that the thief either slaughtered it or sold it off or got rid of it and it's just gone, justice required, if this thief is caught, a five-fold restitution for an ox and a four-fold restitution for a sheep. Okay, so this, the thief would have to pay for the value of the animal, of course, but he would also have to pay for, I guess you might call it, loud punitive damages, punitive damages for the loss and the loss incurred and the time spent without it, all kind of things like that. But in verse 4, we're shown that there is, there is less compensation required if the animal is recovered. Do you see that? So if the animal's gone, we don't know where it's at, but we know who the thief is. They have to pay five times for an ox, four times for a sheep. But if the animal is recovered, so it's found in the thief's possession, less compensation, you're only, you're only to pay double is required. Why? Why is it less if the animal's recovered? Well, like you said, it might have been a lot of training for an ox. 
practices are then trained. Yeah, yeah. So you're receiving your animal back, basically. Now there's still punitive damages because you get you have to give the ox back, of course, but you also have to pay double double the ox. But the principle behind that, I think, is that God's law, and we're going to see this continually as we walk through it, God's law, it, it seeks to give justice based on the harm or the loss that's done to the person. It's not just a blanket punishment like you see in other countries, other religions, where it says, you know, if you steal, it doesn't matter what it is, you get your hand chopped off. You know, it, it, it doesn't, God's justice isn't like that. It takes circumstances into account. It takes the, the harm done to the individual into account. So the person who steals one of your valuable tools, which an ox would be, uh, and it's just, you know, it's a valuable tool to you, but it's returned to you. They would have to make restitution. But if it's a valuable tool to you and it's just gone and you never get it back and it affects your business, it affects your work, it affects your, then you would pay more the restitution. And what this does is, you know, obviously there are going to be other things that get stolen, not just oxen and sheep. There's, you know, camels, there's gold and silver. And, you know, they had all kind of this stuff that they came out of Egypt with. But the idea is that this laid the foundation for the judges in Israel to understand that when they're weighing cases, when they're weighing these cases that come to them, the punishment must fit the crime. That is the, that is the principle. So the more loss there is to the person, the more severe the punishment is. The more severe harm done is met with a more severe punishment. So God's justice is not mechanical. It doesn't just, it's not mechanical without taking the circumstances into, into effect. And secondly, I want to bring this up, and then I'll bring it up again at the end. Do you notice in these punishments, especially we've only looked at verse 1 and 4 yet, but in all of these punishments for theft and for destruction of property, we're going to see those in a minute, we're going to notice they involve the person who does the wronging to right what has been wrong. So in this, in this, in God's justice that He's giving these laws to Israel, it's not just if a man steals your ox, we're going to lock him away and he's being punished. No, you also you have to make restitution to the person that you've wronged. You have to make restitution to the ox, the person whose ox you stole. You have to restore that that you have done to them, and you have to give them something else. What's the principle that we learn? As Christians today, when remember, all of this is about how to love your neighbor. That's all of these laws are about. This is how you love your neighbor. What is the principle we learn as Christians today, not under the Mosaic law, not under the civil law, the ceremonial law, but just salvation, walking in Christ. What is the principle we learn from the fact that restitution for what has been wronged is made? Yes. We should do unto others that, that's a good way to put it. She said, everybody hear that? Do I have to repeat it in here? She said, she said, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. So if your ox gets stolen, I want my ox returned. You know, if, if uh, you know, and honestly, that's, that's part of God's judicial system is that if you have committed a wrong against your neighbor, you have to make it right. You know, you have to make it right. So that's one and four. Verse two and three talk about really home invasion and or home, you know, burglary, I guess you'd call it. 
And the grammar of these verses is a little difficult, so let's walk in it, walk through it. It says, if a thief is found breaking in and struck so that he dies, i.e. by the homeowner, there shall be no blood guilt for him, for the, for the homeowner. But if the sun has risen on the thief, there shall be blood guilt for the homeowner who struck him dead. You see it? So the grammar is a little difficult, but the idea is that if a homeowner kills an intruder at night, there is no penalty, there is no murder charge, you know, there's no, there's no penalty against the owner. But if it happens during the daytime and the homeowner kills the burglar, I guess, or the person that's coming into his home in the daytime, then he will be guilty of murder. Why is there no penalty given at night for killing an intruder? Couldn't tell if the person was armed. You couldn't tell if they were armed. You know, and I thought, I thought about how to apply this to us. And I don't, I'm not real versed on the law about home invasion or whatever, but I do remember taking a handgun class and them saying, you know, to get my concealed carry permit, and them saying, listen, you, you, you can't just fire off rounds if, even if somebody's in your house unless they're, you know, if like you shoot them in the back in your living room at midnight, you're going to jail, you know. And so uh, I do remember that. But I also realized as I was reading this text and just kind of thinking through it is, you know, at night, at night here, you know, if somebody breaks into my house, I'm going to flick the light on. You know, there's no light to flick on in, in ancient Israel in your tent. You know what I'm saying? You got, oh, hold on, let, let me light this lamp here. You know what I mean? So it, you couldn't, the ability to see would be very limited. And I think that's exactly correct. You can't be sure if your life's in danger or not. You don't know whether this intruder is intending to kill you or if they just want to take your stuff or, or, or whatever. So he gives uh, the God, this is God speaking to Moses in the, in the, on Sinai, remember. God tells Moses if, if, if he's struck, if somebody breaks into your house, breaks into your dwelling, and it's nighttime and you strike them, your self-defense, uh, there is no blood guilt for him. But in the daytime, when the homeowner could see whether it was simply just someone with a weapon, someone seeking to kill them, whatever, uh, you, you couldn't just kill them. Now, God's law allows for self-defense, so if he's coming to kill you, then yes, you can defend yourself. But if it's just somebody sneaking in the window to get some jewelry or whatever, you, you can't do that in the daytime, according to God's law. So, God, huh? Yeah. So God allows for self-defense at night. He allows for self-defense in the daytime, but he doesn't allow you to, he doesn't necessitate that you have to stop and assess the situation at nighttime because you can't do that. Uh, when you can't know whether your life's in danger or not, self-defense is part of God's law. But the assumption here is that the thief is not just, it's not that, oh, I see somebody breaking in my house during the daytime. Well, I guess I better let them go. I can't do nothing. But no, no. The idea is that the thief is caught. It's like he, he is caught for doing what it is. And even thieves, according to God's law, had, had the right to live. Couldn't be just killed outright, created in the image of God. But if a thief was caught during the day, uh, even if they were caught during the night and they weren't killed, it says, the text says, he shall surely pay. He shall surely pay. Rather than being killed, a thief would have to pay restitution for what he was, what he was trying to steal. And if he couldn't pay, what does it say? Be sold into slavery for a step. So the idea is not, 
in the daytime, you just got to let everybody take your stuff. You know, you just, that's not the idea. The idea was they still would be caught. They still would be arrested, if you want to say it that way, and that they would have to make restitution for what they did or what they intended to do. And if they couldn't do that, they would be sold into slavery, presumably the money given to the owner of the stuff that they were stealing. What kind of slavery would it be? I think so. Would it be lifelong slavery or would it be bond servant slavery for six years? I think that they would work the debt off for six years and then be released on the seventh year like we saw in the, the slavery laws earlier. So we see a couple of principles at play in these first four verses. So in these first few laws, we see number one, I mean, the image of God is to be protected when your life is not threatened. Now, if your life is threatened, all bets are off. But the image of God is to be protected when your life is not threatened. I think there are several laws on our books that, that state as much. Um, and loss through theft, whether it be somebody breaking in your house or somebody stealing your animals, stealing your stuff, it should be restored by the one who stole it. It should be made right by the one who stole. So how does this apply to our Christian life? I know we do unto others, but let's say that I steal something. I, you know, I'm not going to say I break into your house because if you're doing that, I'm, I'm, come on, we need to have a talk about your salvation. Uh, but, you know, what is the principle, the general equity for what a life pleasing to God, walking in pleasing to God means when it comes to this? It's that if you... If you buy theft or default or buy whatever or deceit that you wrong someone, you are to go and make it right. You are to make restitution for that. It's not, it's not enough to just say, whoops, I'm sorry. You go and make restitution. Now, it's hard for us to think about this in terms of the Christian life, but I think that we see this principle being enacted in the New Testament. I think that we see it enacted in Luke chapter 19. You remember a little short guy named Zacchaeus? Remember him? What happened? What happened to Zacchaeus? What's the story? Briefly. He became a Christian. Yeah, he climbed up the sycamore tree. Jesus said, come, come to your house. He come to, him, come to his house. Long story short, Jesus talks to him. He becomes, he becomes a believer. And do you remember what he said? Yeah. He said in Luke chapter 19, he said, Zacchaeus stood and he said to the Lord, behold, he said, first, he said, half of my goods I give to the poor. That's not what we're talking about here. That's just generosity. That's helping the poor. He says, if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Where does he get a fourfold number? Yeah, I think, I think that he, I can't be certain, so this is not definitive, but I think Zacchaeus is thinking back to the law, saying, you know, if you've wronged someone, if you've stolen, which is what a tax collector often did in those days, if you've stolen, he says, defrauded anyone in the ESV, he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what the law says. I'm going to pay it back. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. So the, the, what you see here in Zacchaeus, I think, is not Zacchaeus saying, okay, I want to be right with God, so therefore I'm going to restore all the things that I've stolen. He's, it's because he has been made right with God, he desires to live in a godly way. And that includes, in Zacchaeus's Jewish mind, returning fourfold to those that I have stolen. Questions, comments? Cries of outrage?
he must have invested it well that he could pay back fourfold and give half to the poor. Well, either he invested it well or he was given, I mean, I don't know, I don't care how much you got. If you got $15 million and you give half away and you restore full fold of what you've stolen, you're giving a lot away. You know, so it might have been just a, you know, a picture of repentance and, and seeking to walk in a, so you've been made right with God through Jesus Christ and now you just seek to please God in the way that you walk as well. And remember, Zacchaeus and Jewish nation raised in these laws, brought up in these laws, in, in the melody of his mind, he's thinking, okay, what do I need to do to make this right? Well, I repent before God, and according to Exodus 22, I restore fourfold to what I've stolen. You know? And so he is, he is seeking to please God by walking after the commands of God, I think. Okay? So the principle is, to the best of our ability... We are to make right the wrong that we've caused to others. Sometimes you're not able to, so it's not a every, but to the best of our ability. So the next thing that we see in these laws, I know it's not riveting reading. My biggest fear is boring y'all to death, so I'm sorry about that. But it's not loss by theft. It's loss by negligence. So it says in verse 5, if a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed over and lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and in his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain and the standing grain or the field or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. Now, in my reading, my understanding of this text, these are both accidents. Like it's, you know, you can picture a guy who is, I don't know, careless with his flock, careless with his herd, careless with whatever fire he started. You know, I, I read some things about how they, they burn their fields off to prepare them for the next thing. Or it could just be a campfire. It could be, you know, it could be that kind of fire. But it, the, 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 it, the point of this law is that it, if your livestock or your fire is left unattended or for whatever reason whatsoever gets loose and it destroys someone else's property. It's not enough just to say, oh, I'm sorry, it was an accident. Justice requires that you make restitution. Even if it was an accident, God requires that you make it right. He, he specifies it's to be made right. You see it in there? From the best of his own field. So, you know, I'm sorry I burnt your field down. You know, here's the leftover produce I had after I sold all my stuff. You know? No, no, no. You have to make it right. You don't just give him the leftover stuff. So legal liability, is that what it's called? Legal liability is a biblical principle, even in the case of an accident. It, it, loving our neighbor, which is what these laws are teaching us to do, the equity of these laws, God expects us to take full responsibility for our actions. Regardless of whether we intended to damage somebody else's property or not, we are to... Like she said, do unto others as we would have them do unto us. I remember this, the a fire burning somebody else's field really, really jogged a memory in, in my life. We were in our backyard in Tennessee. You remember, Dana? And you know those big cases of fireworks that we sell that is like, those big cannon things that go way up in the air. But it's not just the tube, it's the big box of it with, with you know, 18 of them in there. So, you know, being, being the intelligent engineer that I am, I, I, 
I, I rigged this little thing where it would just be out there in the yard and it would just shoot up in the air. Well, after the second volley, it fell over and started shooting into my neighbor's field. And it caught the whole field on fire. Yeah. And, and so... Uh, you, you know what happens. You know, we, they came out of the house. We ran over there. We were all like yanking water hoses and trying to get. But that was, after it was all over, you know, it wasn't a field like they plowed, like they got money off of. It was just a, a grass field. But there I was, and what am I going to do? Yeah, well, it, it wasn't planted at the time. <laughs> so what do, I, what do I do, you know? We, Dana and I were talking to them, and we were like, you know, you just te- tell us what the cost is. What, what, what do we need to do to, to make, I mean, it was just, it was, it was, it was pretty scary. Because, like, once that stuff catches, especially, thankfully it wasn't Kansas, so there was no wind. But, <laughs> I mean, and this thing shot, there's 18 shots in it, and it shot twice and fell over. So that's 16 shots going that way. And like, you can't run over there and put out the fire until that joker stops shooting, you know? And so that fire had taken, it had taken off by the time we got over. And the liability of that, you know, if you were, I don't know, from a legal standpoint, if I would have said, oh, sorry, and they took me to court, I would have been liable, wouldn't I? Yeah. 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 But you notice this is only compensatory. It doesn't have a attached to it. Really? Well, yeah, you didn't have to pay double. Double, okay, yeah. Did you hear that? Lyle said that this law is, say it again? Compensatory. Compensatory. It's not punitive. So he only has to replace what has been damaged, not give punitive damages. You think that might be because it was an accident? Probably? Okay, yeah, that's good. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, interesting indeed. So God expects us to take responsibility for our actions. So what'd you pay? Huh? What'd you pay? I didn't, they didn't require me to pay. They said, oh, don't worry about it. It's fine. You know, they, so they, they, were, they were good to me. They were good, they were good to me. Any questions about that? So the first principle, restore what you've wronged. If you've wronged, you have to restore it. And that's part of God's justice. The second principle is you're responsible for your actions, even if... Your actions weren't intentional and they caused damage. Uh, The next section involves, and this one was harder for me to apply. It involves care, well, it's not really that hard. It involves caring for the property of others when it's in our possession. Now, how many of y'all have got a neighbor that borrowed some stuff and it got all broke up and messed up? (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) This may speak more to us than I thought it would. So in, in, huh? I don't know what you're I'm gonna talk to you when you get home. That is not this text. That's the next text. The next text. The next section. We're going to talk about borrowing things and breaking them. So, yes, I did mess up Keith's lawnmower. So it says, if a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe. So it's, this is not you borrowing something. This is, hey, would you take care of this stuff for me? And it's stolen from the man's house. Then, if the thief is found, he shall pay. The thief shall pay double. We've already seen that principle. 
If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property for every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox, for a donkey, a sheep, for a cloak, or for any kind of lost thing of which one says, this is it. The case of both parties shall come before God. I know there's a translation issue. I'll address it in just a second. The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. Now, this is a little dense here because there's a lot of things going on. First, in the ancient world, you understand there were no banks, no safety deposit boxes, no secure storage. So common practice was we're, when, we're, when we're traveling, we're going to leave our stuff, and to leave all valuable stuff, our possessions, with a neighbor, with family, with someone to kind of watch it to make sure it, it's all good. God wanted his people to understand loving your neighbor means if you accept responsibility for other people's property entrusted to you, then you bear the responsibility for that property that's entrusted to you. So, for instance, a guy goes away and he leaves valuables with a trusted friend. When he comes back, the valuables are gone. And the friend says, a robber came and stole it, and here he is. Okay, fine. The robber returns it, and he pays back double. Everything's the way it is. No problem. Thief is caught. But what if the thief is not caught? In verse, uh, verse 7, at the end of verse 7, or verse 8, if the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. So the thief is required to pay double if he's caught, but if he's not caught, how can this guy who gave his property to entrusted to his neighbor know that the neighbor isn't lying and just said, well, the thief is the, a thief came and stole it. Sorry, you know, what if he just kept it for himself? It would be easier just to say, it, it's stolen, man. Sorry, it's gone. Uh, sorry for your loss. Verse 8 tells us what should happen in that. And here's where we run into our translation issue. It says, If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God. How many of you have a Bible in your lap that doesn't say God, but says Judges? That's, that's right. NIV says Judges. New American Standard says Judges. Uh, NET, New English Translation says Judges. I think even the Holman Christian Standard says Judges. Um, why is the ESV the Lone Ranger here and just says they'll come before God? It's a couple of reasons. So the word is Elohim, which means God. It's the words always used for God. But it's also used for earthly judges in certain contexts in the Old Testament. And, and so this, um, this, the idea here is that with the NIV, NET, NASB, they translate it as judges. Uh, because the idea is that you would come and make your case. So it says for every, uh, look at it, if thief is not found, the owner shall come near to, let's say, the judges to show, to prove whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. And then it says for every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox, donkey, whatever, 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 or for a lost thing in which one says this is it, meaning, meaning that... Um, Guy comes home, his stuff is gone, neighbor says somebody stole it, and the neighbor says, I didn't see who stole it, but I saw Joe down the road, and he's got that donkey in his backyard, and that's the donkey, that's your donkey, and he must have stole it, and Joe says, no, that's not his donkey, that's my donkey. They were to bring them to the judges, and the judges of Israel would determine which one was right, which one was wrong, and whoever was wrong, either the guy who had the donkey or the owner who said it was the donkey would have to pay double. Make sense? 
The reason the ESV translates Elohim God here and the rest of all the translations translated Judges is because in the very next section it talks about if the thief is not found and it wasn't witnessed to be stolen, then the two would come and they would make an oath before Yahweh, before the Lord. And I think the ESV translators see these two things as relatively the same incident. So they translated God because the idea is that in this instance they're coming before God and they're doing the same thing that they're doing in 10 verses 10, verses 10 through 13. The reason NIV, NASB, and all the others translate Elohim as judges because often it is uh, earthly judges translated from that word. But they're seeing this as a different scenario. So the idea here is that the, the, if the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to show whether or not he has put his hand. He would have to make the case before the judges, and the judges would decide if the donkey is found or the ox is found or whatever it is, and there's a, there's a breach of trust, there's a disagreement about whether it is the actual donkey, they would bring them all to the judges. I think it could be either one, to be honest, because verses 10 through 13 are going to say if nobody knows, they are to come and he, the owner, the homeowner is to take an oath before the Lord. And if he does that before God, then the guy who lost his property is just to accept that oath. Anybody have any strong feelings? What do you think would be worse to come to come and talk to the earthly judges and try to figure the case out? Or to come before God and take an oath. Ultimately, it's going to be God. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. But you can you can see where an ungodly person would say, "I'll just take the oath and I'll just be done with it." So honestly, I can't say definitively whether the NIV and ASB have it right or whether the ESV has it right, because that word is translated as both God for the majority of the places in the Old Testament but it's also translated as judges in several different places. But either way, they were to come and make their case. If you, had to, if you shot me and I'd fall dead over on my view, it'd probably be with judges. And I think the ESV's kind of got it wrong here. Okay? All right, we're sure are quiet. Verse 9 talks about, like we said, neighbor identifying what's stolen in someone else's possession says, hey, there's that animal. That's it. And the guy with the animal said, no, no, this is my animal. It's not your animal. They were to come before the judges, and Israel and the judges were to investigate, make a ruling based on the evidence. Uh, But it's also possible it's the other. But notice, though, notice this. If it was stolen, and the two people come before the judges, or come before God, whichever one you take it to mean, somebody's paying the owner double. You see it? If it really is stolen property, if this is the donkey, you know, if they say, okay, this is the right donkey, then the guy who stole it's paying the owner double. But if this is not the donkey, and they, then the guy who it's stolen from is paying double. Why is that the case? I mean, technically, we can assume it's not his fault. He was negligent. He was negligent. He, was, he either stole it himself, or he was negligent to not take care of it. And so he's paying, he's paying double. So no matter what happens, the owner's getting paid double. It's just, is this the thief or is this guy negligent that didn't want? And it goes back to the same principle. You restore, you restore what you've wronged and you take responsibility for people who leave their stuff that you accept responsibility for their stuff. 
Um, verse 10 through 13 expands on this. And this is not a guy comes and asks me to watch his stuff. This is me going and borrowing stuff. If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or a beast to keep safe. So, well, I guess that is a... Okay, never mind. We'll get to that later. We'll get to borrowing later. If a man gives to his neighbor, okay, we're talking specifically animals here, a donkey or ox, sheep, or any beast to keep safe, and it's not stolen, but look, it dies, it's injured, or it's driven away without anyone seeing it. So it's not stolen, but it's not taken care of. It either dies, it's whatever. It says, an oath by, an oath by the Lord shall be between them, both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property, the owner shall accept the oath, and he shall not make restitution. So this talks about the animal entrusted to someone's safekeeping, dies, injures, or whatever. There's no witness to what happened. So was he taking care of it? Was he negligent? Was he not feeding it? Was he not watching it? So just uh, the previous verse said, oh, there's, there's the animal right there. But here there's no animal to be found. We don't know where it is. Um, the person must prove that he has not been dishonest must prove that he has not been negligent. You can't just say, well, it must have been stolen. I'm sorry it died. I'm sorry your animal died. I mean, there must, it must have had a heart problem because I was taking good care of it. And it was, no. So honestly, they would come before God in this case, before Yahweh, the Lord, the covenant God. Remember, Yahweh is his covenant name. They'd come before the Lord, and the guy who kept the property would have to make an oath before Yahweh, before God, and say, I did not mistreat this animal or drive this animal away or injure this animal. You know, I did the best I could to take care of this animal, and it just died. Uh, and in that case, if he took this oath before the Lord, the Lord becomes the judge and jury and will condemn uh, him if he's lying but the owner of the animal is to accept this oath and he will not have to make restitution you think people abuse that we've seen a lot of things in the law where, where especially we talk about bond servants and female bond servants and we talked about different things where people could abuse people could abuse the 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 statute but that's not the intention of the statute you know, sinful man will always find a way to enact his sin, but it could be abused. But to be quite honest, back to my question earlier, I would much rather present my case to some earthly judges than take an oath before the Lord. Remember where they're at. I mean, they're standing at Mount Sinai with the fire and the smoke and the dark cloud and the earthquake. I mean, they're standing right here before God and Moses has gone up into the mountain and is receiving all of this from God and they're just standing there. Uh, that picture, uh, they're going to sin and they're going to go back to the way they, you know, they had always done. We're going to see that. But you can imagine, can you imagine standing before God and you're making an oath before the Lord of glory, the powerful God, that they were scared to even hear his voice. You're going to make an oath saying, I did not touch this animal. That would be a whole lot more terrifying to me than just presenting it before a human judge. But, but on this one, I mean, he doesn't have to pay anything if, if the animal was sick, died, or died. But if it was stolen, he does have to pay. Yes. No. Yes. 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 <laughs> well, 
Right, right. I think the idea is that it wasn't his fault. It's a defective animal. So it's not like, so if he's negligent and not feeding it, mistreating it, whatever, we're going to see that in the borrowed animal in a minute. But the idea here is, hey man, you brought me a 30-year-old cow and it happened to die while you were gone. What do you expect? You know, it's not my fault. So he's, he's basically taking an oath before God that I didn't do anything to your animal. It's just, you know, it had a heart attack or, or whatever, whatever. It was injured in some way that wasn't my fault. I think at 12, though, maybe what 12 talks about is maybe some kind of negligence. That's why it was stolen. Yeah. I didn't secure it in that, but, and that's why right. it was stolen. Right. In 12, it says, but if it's stolen from him, he shall make restitution. So if the animal's stolen, it means that you weren't watching. You weren't taking care of it. You didn't have it locked up. You didn't pin it up. You didn't take every precaution. Uh, but you can take every precaution possible, and animals are going to die at some point, you know, sometimes from strange freak things. So that's the idea. The idea is responsibility and negligence. Um, so you're... That's the idea. And it says, if it's torn by beasts, let him bring it as evidence. Let him bring the torn body as evidence, and he shall not make restitution for what has been torn. So, you know, God doesn't expect you to jump in front of a lion to protect somebody's oxen. You know, or a bear. You know, a bear came and, you know, be mauled by a bear because you don't want to pay double for somebody's oxen. You, that's a, that's a, we call that an act of God. That a bear, I'm sorry, man, a bear broke into my pen and killed your ox. Here's the carcass, you know. Why do you think that is? So if it's injured, it dies on your watch, it's all good. If it's stolen on your watch by another person, you will make restitution. But if, uh, you know, a, a lion, a tiger, a bear, or a lion breaks into your... Because there would be evidence in, there. It would be evidence there. Plus, you don't have to put yourself in danger. The image of God is always more valuable than property. The image of God. So the, the, the person watching the animal is not expected to risk his life for an animal by fighting a lion or something like that. Okay? All right, last two verses. Last two verses. This deals with borrowing, Dana. My lawnmower. Yeah. I borrowed Keith's lawnmower, and my yard is basically dirt and roots. And the deck hit a root, and it bent one of his things. And, yeah. One, you know, one of the wheel, the, the deck wheels. That's what they call them, I guess. Bent one of those. So if a man borrows anything of his neighbor, okay, this is not, please watch my stuff. This is, hey, can I borrow your stuff? If a man borrows anything from his neighbor and is injured or dies, assuming it's an animal, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. If it was hired, it came for its hiring fee. So he is borrowing stuff, and the principle here, just the basic principle, is the borrower assumes the risk if the owner's not with it. So if the owner, the, the idea is that if the owner's there, okay, I'm going to borrow your ox to help plow my field. And the owner says, well, I, I can't let you borrow the ox, but I can come with it and, uh, and I, I'll help you with your field. And you can just use my ox. Well, the owner's responsible there because the owner's presence assures 
But the animal's going to be taken care of. It's not going to be mistreated. It's not going to be the, the owner's there in charge of the animal. But, okay, you can borrow my ox. Go ahead and take the ox. If you're borrowing it and he's not there or she's not there, the owner's not there, you accept responsibility for that animal. And so there's, you work it too hard, you work it too long, you don't feed it, you don't get enough water when it's hot, whatever. You do all those things and it dies, it's on you. The borrower assumes the responsibility for the care. But if the owner says, I can't let you borrow the ox, but if you give me $200, I'll let you use the ox. So if you hire it out, it says it came for its hiring fee. The hiring fee is what you get. You don't get restitution. And so the owner's responsible for the animal if he hires it out or if he comes with it to help. If a man is paying for the use of it, any damage is covered in that hire. And so what you see is kind of the same thing you've seen all through. It's about who accepts responsibility and who is responsible when there's damages that happen. When And all of these regulations are not just about, hey guys, do right and be right and live like you're supposed to live. These regulations taught God's people how to live in community under the covenant of God, how to respect one another, how to love one another, how to respect one another's property, how to settle disputes with one another. Um, and certainly you got to know it, it had to be a deterrent for criminals that wanted to steal stuff because, you know, if you get caught, you're paying back double or sometimes quadruple of what you tried to take away. But embedded in all of these laws is also the principle, we saw the principle that human life is more valuable than property in every instance. We saw that failure to care for others' property that's in my possession brings liability. We saw that damage to others' property um, that's my fault, whether I intended to or not, is my responsibility. And as I said at the beginning, if you notice what's missing in all of these punishments to these, to these laws is that there's no incarceration. There's no, there's no punitive. I mean, there is in some of the laws we saw, and you're going to see in the next one, you know, don't let a sorcerer live. There's, there's capital crimes that require you know, punishment for sure. But all of these laws where you wrong someone, where you steal from someone, where someone's property is damaged, they involve restitution. They involve restitution of what's been wrong. Loving your neighbor means that you make it right with your brother when you do them wrong or when you have done them wrong or when you have stolen from them or you've caused damage to them or damage to their property. It involves loving your neighbor means, just like we were told earlier, what Jesus said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Now, this principle that we've seen in all these laws is, is a general principle and it is applicable to even the Christian life. The one who has been made right with God in the gospel, the one who has no, no more need to strive for merit with God or, or try to please God. Uh, in standing because we've been made right with God in Jesus Christ, yet we do desire to walk pleasing to God. And so we, we live according to his commands. We live according to his law because we desire to please him and desire to live a life pleasing. But this is important because what it tells us is how to love our neighbor. If I burn my neighbor's field down by accident and I don't go and make it right, I don't go and help them, I don't go and make restitution, I am not loving my neighbor. I'm not doing unto them as I would have them do unto me. And this principle that undergirds these laws 
is very, very important to God. So last thing I'll show you before we go is that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, if you're offering your gift at the altar, if you're worshiping, and there remember that your brother has something against you, it says to leave your gift there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. This is extremely how we love one another, how we make it right when we've wronged one another, how we do those things is extremely important to God. So much so that Jesus says if, if somebody, notice he doesn't say if you have something against your brother. He says if your brother has something against you, you leave your gift at the altar, you go make it right with your brother, and then you come back and you give your gift at the altar. It's very important. I think it's the first John. It says, how can, you, how can you say you love God whom you have not seen and hate your brother whom you have seen? It's extremely important. That's why Jesus summed up the whole law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Everything we've seen tonight falls under loving your neighbor. And these laws are not intended to just give us, give us, you know, statutes to memorize and, and all these laws to, they're to give us the principle of what it looks like to love your neighbor in this situation or what it looks like to love your neighbor in that situation and how Israel is to love one another in covenant community. Any questions? Okay, you only got two more chapters of this. Oh my. And then, oh, then we get to talk about tabernacle furniture. Oh, wow. oh it's going to be so fun. It's going to be so fun. Yeah. All right, let's pray. Father, we do love you. We thank you for your word. God, we thank you for instruction in what it looks like to love our neighbor. To not just love in word, but to love in deed as well. Especially when we damage one another. When we sin against one another. Because we so often do. God, thank you for, thank you for the grace of the gospel where we know that we all in this room have failed to make restitution when we've wronged one another in, in instances probably all through our lives. I know that I have. Thank you that we have the gospel, that we don't come to the law for our righteousness. Our righteousness is given in Christ. But God, we thank you for the grace of the law that shows us, um, shows us how we are to walk in love to one another. And shows us what a life pleasing to you looks like. Though we fail to do it so often, God, we thank you for the instruction of knowing what it is that we are called to do and the principles that are embedded therein. We do thank you. God, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.